During the first year of our marriage, my wife suffered a series of very sore throats. I attended the appointment she made with her doctor. After he examined her, he rolled his chair back to his computer, typed a couple of notes, and then turned and said to her, Mrs. Nelson, those tonsils, they should have come out a long time ago, but I'm going to take those out for you and fix this problem. I could tell my bride was a bit concerned, so I kicked into reassure mode. Honey, I had a friend, Dean, when I was a kid in elementary school. He had his tonsils out in the morning, and he was eating potato chips that night. At this, the doctor rolled back from his computer and turned toward us. He was not impressed with my prognosis. He said something like this, Oh, Mrs. Nelson, you're not in elementary school. You're a full-grown adult, and I'm going to take something like a melon ball scooper and scoop two large areas out of either side of your throat. It's going to hurt really bad. And it's going to hurt bad for a whole week. It might hurt the worst at the end of the first week. But hang in there, it'll suddenly feel much better and you won't have any more sore throats. That doctor turned out to be a prophet. About day six, we would have likely contacted an attorney had it not been for that wise doctor painting an accurate picture of her week of post-op. The writer to the book of Hebrews gives the post-op on the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. As we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest, his trials, and his crucifixion, you have to wonder if Jesus wouldn't have rather gone into it a little bit ignorant. The events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and the crucifixion itself were described in quite meticulous detail in the Old Testament. Jesus knew his Old Testament, and he knew these passages about what would be done to the Messiah. King David had written a psalm, Psalm 22. As we've stated before, Jesus was from David's line. Jesus likely had all of David's poems and songs memorized. As Jesus read or sang or meditated on Psalm 22, he knew there was no way this was describing David. He knew it was describing the one who'd come from David, the king who would rule forever, the Messiah. Listen to these words of David in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who look on me deride me. They sneer. They shake their heads saying, let God rescue him if he delights in him. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melting within me. My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery. My tongue clings to my jaws. Dogs have surrounded me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Jesus knew that wasn't about David. It was about him. And then he knew that Isaiah 53 prophecy about the suffering servant of God. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment of us all was laid upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. The Lord has caused the wrongdoings of us all to fall upon him. Isaiah continues, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shearers. Still he does not open his mouth. And then it goes a layer deeper. But the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief, rendering him a guilt offering. Afflicted, wounded, pierced, 
crushed by God himself. You gotta wonder if ignorance wouldn't have been bliss for Jesus. I think that insight about what Jesus knew was coming will help you understand a few of the things the gospel writers tell us about Jesus in the coming hours of his prayer in Gethsemane, his arrest, and his trials before the religious and Roman authorities. Here's what the gospel writers tell us. After Jesus' last hour speaking with his disciples, they sang a hymn together. That was a part of the whole Passover celebration. Remember, this is the eve of the Passover. They're on their way east toward the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. As they're walking, Jesus quotes an Old Testament prophecy, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's warning his men, it's about to get very ugly. When Simon Peter hears the sheep will be scattered, he protests, Never, Lord, I will never abandon you. Remember, Jesus has already warned him of this in the upper room. Jesus has warned him that he will actually deny Jesus by morning. But Peter will have none of it. But the gospel writer Mark tells us Jesus repeats his warning. He says to Peter, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me. Now remember, Peter was the one who led Mark to Christ and who gave him the story of Jesus. This feels like Peter telling Mark, You know what, Mark? I didn't just get one warning. I got two. And it wasn't just the rooster crowing once. It crowed twice. We'll come back to this. They then get to the Garden of Gethsemane. It apparently was one of Jesus' favorite hangouts. We're told by the Gospel writer John, Judas knew he'd go to Gethsemane. It's entirely possible that Judas and his arresting mob came to the upper room first, and then made their way toward the second place Jesus would be hanging out, his prayer garden. At the entrance to the garden, Jesus leaves the disciples, all but Peter, James, and John. He takes this inner group in with him. Matthew and Mark tell us why. Matthew tells us Jesus said, My soul is crushed to the point of death. Mark adds, I'm filled with horror and deep distress. Jesus pleads with these three men to lift him up, to intercede for what he has to do. I ask my students, if you were writing about Jesus, your hero as a gospel writer, would you put something like this in the account? Your hero, the one who had been called for this very night, troubled to the point of despair at what lay ahead. Jesus leaves the three to pray and goes about a stone's throw away. He falls face down on the ground and begins to plead with God. Matthew tells us his prayer was, Father, if it's possible, any other way possible, please do it. But nevertheless, I want your will. Mark reports, he cries out, Abba. That's his birth language, Aramaic, and it's the word for Papa. Peter was only a stone throw away. Peter could likely hear his prayer. The Son of God, Jesus, is calling out to Papa. The writer Luke adds more detail. As Jesus is pouring out his prayers, an angel comes and ministers to Jesus. Jesus is in such a dire place that God sends one of heaven's bellboys to shore him up. That's probably a good thing, because Jesus will return to find the three disciples not praying for him, but snoring. Luke, the physician, adds a little more detail. He tells us as Jesus poured out his heart to Abba, sweat dropped to the ground like drops of blood. Some people translate it that Dr. Luke is saying he sweat blood. Could Dr. Luke have been reporting Jesus is in such agony that his capillaries are bursting on his skin? After a period of prayer, 
Jesus returns to check on the disciples, and as I've mentioned, they're sound asleep. It's been a long, agonizing, emotional night. It's late, likely after midnight. Jesus doesn't seem to be angry, just disappointed. He says, Peter, are you asleep? Reading between the lines, you can almost hear him say, you the one who'd lay down your life for me? Then Jesus gives instructions to these three men. It's no longer pray for me, it's pray for you that you won't fall into temptation. Two more times, Jesus goes off a stone's throw away to pray, and two more times, the disciples fall asleep. Each time, Jesus prays something similar. Father, Abba, if there's any other way, nevertheless, your will be done. When Jesus returns to Peter, James, and John for the third time, he's probably seeing glowing torches coming up over the rise. He tells Peter, James, and John, get up, my betrayer is here. Judas is leading quite a throng. Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe it as a mob with religious leaders, temple guards, and others. John tells us it included a Roman cohort, likely 300 to 600 men. They're carrying torches, clubs, and swords. It's after midnight, the Garden of Gethsemane is dark, and the only way this mob will know they got the right guy is if someone can go right up to the guy and ID him. Judas has this covered. He'll find Jesus, greet him, and give him a kiss. Judas finds Jesus and greets him. Luke tells us, Jesus says to Judas, Judas, will you betray me with a kiss? Matthew adds Jesus saying, friend, do what you came to do. Jesus asks the mob, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus the Nazarene. When Jesus replies, I am he, John reports the mob falls backwards to the ground. Apparently by this time, the other disciples join Peter, James, and John at Jesus' side. One or more of them ask Jesus, Lord, should we fight? We have two swords. But one of them means it. He pulls out one of the swords and takes a swing at the nearest person. He swipes horizontally as if to cut off his head, and the guy ducks and gets his right ear sliced off. We know it was the right ear because Luke, the doctor, tells us that. John even gives us the guy's name, Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And while the other gospel writers keep it on the down low, John snitches on who it is. It's Peter. Jesus says to Peter, sheath it. Don't you realize I could call 12 legions of angels if I needed help right now. A legion was a thousand. We know there are millions of angels, heaven's bellboys. God's bellboys can have some serious firepower. It was an angel bringing death that wiped out the firstborn in Egypt. And God sent an angel against the Assyrians one night, and just south of 200,000 soldiers woke up dead. The disciples still don't get it. Jesus is hell-bent to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Dr. Luke adds a little more detail. That Malchus guy holding his face and screaming in pain? Jesus reaches out and replaces his right ear. Jesus then challenges the mob with one final question. I've been teaching in the temple openly. Why didn't you arrest me then? Oh, I know. You did it this way that you might fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. That's Jesus' way of saying, gentlemen, you're following God's script perfectly. And speaking of following God's pre-written script, it's at this point the disciples make a dash for it. The shepherd's sheep scatter. Mark adds a curious detail the other gospel writers skip. 
He says, A certain young man in the crowd was grabbed by the Roman soldiers. He left the linen nightshirt in their hands and ran naked into the darkness. Many people speculate that young streaker was Mark. We'll discover as we get into the book of Acts, Mark was a teenager at this time. His mother had a large house somewhere in the middle of Jerusalem. It's not that big a stretch to think a young man who's tucked in for the night hears a mob of people going past his house with torches and clubs, pops out of bed and follows them up to the Garden of Gethsemane. If that's the case, the Gospel writer Mark was an eyewitness of some of these events. Before hauling Jesus out of Gethsemane, John tells us they shackled him. John also tells us Jesus' first stop was Annas, the father of Caiaphas, the high priest. Knowing the mob had been sent with Judas, some of them had gathered at Annas' house. They're pacing back and forth, anticipating this long-overdue kangaroo court. Apparently, Annas' house had a large courtyard. John tells us two of the disciples who'd fled into the night follow the mob. One of them, though, an official who's guarding the courtyard, and he gets in. That disciple has to be John. He goes to the gatekeeper, vouches for Peter, and sneaks Peter in. The high priest is there, and he starts questioning Jesus concerning his disciples and his teaching. Jesus replies, I've taught openly in the temple court. Call in witnesses. They know what I said. At this point, one of the officers standing there struck Jesus across the face. Have you ever been slapped across the face? Seeing this is going nowhere, they adjourn and move Jesus in his shackles to Caiaphas' house for the real trial. At Caiaphas' house, more are assembled. Trying to make this look legitimate, they immediately call in their pre-assembled witnesses. The witnesses can't agree to anything. It's going to be a mistrial. They finally find two witnesses who will come in and agree. He told us, destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I'll raise it up without hands. But even here, some of their testimony was questionable. All during this time, Jesus stands there completely silent. Then Caiaphas interrupts, and he does something completely illegal. He puts the accused under oath. I adjure you in God's name. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus didn't have to have his Miranda rights read to know he could have remained silent. But the fuse was lit. It's now probably about 4 a.m. on Passover day. Jesus answers the interrogation. For the record, let me read you Mark's court transcript. Jesus replied, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And when Jesus recited those words in the God script, those words concerning God's Messiah from Daniel 7.13, this play moved to Act 2. Caiaphas tears his clothes. People in the room scream blasphemy. Caiaphas renders the verdict. Jesus gets the death penalty. What happens to Jesus in the following hour is really hard to even read. This room of religious men surround Jesus. They spit on him and either slap him or pummel him with their fists. Mark adds, they then blindfold him and continue the pummeling. It's a slap and a prophesy, you Messiah. Who hit you that time? Luke adds, they blasphemed him with terrible words. 
And Mark adds, when they were finished and leading him away to his next trial before Pilate, the guards kept slapping and hitting him as he went along the way. Meanwhile, as this is going on, the spotlight turns to Peter in the courtyard. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see six different people or groups approach Peter. Some recognize him as having been with Jesus. Some suspect he's a Jesus apprentice because of his Galilean accent. Others maybe just think he's out of place. But when you put the four gospel accounts together, Peter either denies knowing Jesus or curses him outright six times. On the third, a rooster crows. And on the sixth, one crows again. Luke adds one final vivid detail. Likely in the midst of this beatdown and mocking from religious leaders, Peter in the nearby courtyard denies Jesus. When he does, Jesus turns and looks at him. They're close enough to make intimate eye contact. They're close enough where Jesus may have heard all six denials. The gospel writers make it clear what happened to Peter. He got out of that courtyard and he broke down in bitter tears. The crowing rooster alerts us it's now sunrise in Jerusalem on the day of the Passover. Jesus is being whisked away in shackles toward Pilate's palace. Over the next three hours, he'll be tried by Roman officials, and by 9 a.m., he'll be nailed on one of their crosses. We'll take a look at those Roman trials and the crucifixion of Jesus in our next word picture.